This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories, Father and Son by Robin Kane, Disappearing Act by Carol Carpenter, and Breaking It Down by Beverly C. Lucy. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Father and Son, written by Robin Kane, read by Scott Rayo, listening time, 5 minutes, 45 seconds. Father and Son, by Robin Kane. So I am trapped in a whale with my father. I am made of wood, but not the traditional sort of marionette wood. I prefer to think of it as more of an emotional state. I am hard-pressed to know how he survived for two years trapped in this whale's belly before I, too, was swallowed. I believe I found some whiskey. Father calls from behind a rib bone, and I nod solemnly, knowing that there is no whiskey. I feel it time to escape, but how? As his only child, I suppose it is my duty to save us both. He can jump on my back and I will swim us safely to shore, given that father cannot swim. However, I cannot help but think that he should save me. I fear he may be going quite mad, although it is hard to tell. It stinks of rotted fish, and I move to another part of the belly as to avoid an oily puddle. Father claims that the whale ate the remnants of a shipwreck filled with goods, meats and hard cheeses. However, I suspect he has been subsisting on live tuna. Father has always been good at telling lies. Father never wanted a child, nor wanted to create me in his own image. At the green age of eighteen, five in puppet years, Father decided that I was to be on my own. While my peers were given instruction, a moral compass and gold coins, I was out selling my blood. Never was there a mention that perhaps there was a better way. However, perhaps I always knew that I was a poet. The subsequent scuffle with the law, an incident in which I was clearly innocent, still pains me. Bloodless but hopeful, I only wanted to bury the gold coins, which I had rightfully earned, and grow a tree that sprouts money. Father left me in jail for several days. I am still not certain he knew that I was gone until I yelled my name repeatedly, repeatedly. My name echoed through the canyon walls. Then, at last, he came to fetch me. Father runs back and forth from one curved side of the belly to another, laughing gleefully as he slides like a slick oyster. Father, I yell. Yes, my boy, yes, he says from the ground, patting his belly like a seal. Father had never wanted to be a father. He spent his days carving wood, his evenings drinking whiskey and smuggling beautiful women into his bed. The day was grim when I moved back into the small cottage. Then the fateful fishing outing, when he was consumed, most likely by accident, by a whale of great proportion. Options. Escape via the whale's long tongue and slide between his thick gums to freedom squeeze through the spout, coerce the whale to sneeze, blowing out in a burst of water. Obstacle? Father can't swim. 
I pinch my lean wooden arm. A mere twig. I fear that my bone tool is starting to crack. I don't have much time. Perhaps this strange act of fate occurred with reason, so that I could know the hands that created me. Maybe Father will come to understand why I spend my days describing the world in splendid colors. He crouches next to what appears to be a stick of butter. He prods it with a dead fish. But what if this is the last time we are to meet in this life? Father, let us speak of life, I say, slumping down on a dry spot next to him. Have you ever seen dolphin shit like this, he asks. I start to pick up my crippled writing utensil once again, but think better of the idea. Father, what were your plans in bringing a son into this world, I ask. My boy, I always wanted a son, he says, throwing the dead fish aside. I watch with wonder as his nose stretches and strains, growing before my very eyes. Father, too, appears rather alarmed, however briefly. He clears his throat. A man's greatest joy, his children, he says. His nose groans and thrusts forward from between his eyes. I stammer in an effort to respond when a great clatter interrupts my thoughts. The water is coming. Father, climb upon my back. Father, the flood we feared has arrived, I yell. Father acts nonchalant and grabs onto a nearby rib. My boy, grab hold of a rib, quickly now. I grasp for a rib as the water floods my eyes, my nose, my mouth. I sputter and shake and hold on for dear life as the water rushes and swirls. Slowly, the water calms and weakly I call, Father, Father. There is no sound. I run wildly about the belly, searching every cranny and nook, slipping and calling, but to no avail. Father is gone. I climb ribs like a madman, pushing my head up through layers of spout meat until finally I glimpse the light. With a determined shove, I emerge from the spout and breathe air, sun, freedom. I feel very much alive. I look to the sea. My father swims like a pro one arm in front of the other towards the shore. Robin Kane lived in Manhattan for the past six years. This fall, she began to pursue her MFA at USC. She is currently working on a novel titled Little City. Disappearing Act, written by Carol Carpenter, read by Anne Rushton. Listening time, two minutes. Disappearing Act Betty had no choice. She was losing parts of herself, bit by bit, sometimes a whole chunk. At 57, her bones were thinning. Her gallbladder, tonsils, appendix, uterus, a lump in the right breast, two teeth, strands of hair, all gone. Her disappearing act, she joked with Charles last night, before he told her he could not leave his wife of 40 years. He had no choice, he said. His wife counted on him. Betty counted on no one except herself. All 300 pounds of her flesh anchored her to her lawn chair on her rotted front porch. Boards were broken, slanting down, missing. A chip ceramic bowl, rimmed in red and full of pea pods from her garden, rested in her lap. 
She snapped the first pea pod like it was Charlie's finger, the one that used to stroke the surgical scar on her breast. Then she emptied the other pea pods, setting up a rhythm. Snap, snap, snap. She adjusted her glasses, watched the demolition of the boarded-up house across the street as the wrecking ball swung at the roof, the walls, the very foundation. Once she dated a man who destroyed houses. She had been with all kinds of men, teachers, house painters, clerks, bikers, and they all fell through. Crack, a board splintered under her, then another, until she dropped straight down, still sitting upright in the chair. Peas rolled like pinballs in her hair. She looked straight up through the porch to the right of the rotted gutters, and all she saw was blue sky. Then she heard a bell, a pinball scoring her jackpot, as the bald head of a demolition worker peeked over the jagged boards and reached down to help her up. The End Carol Carpenter's stories and poems have appeared in Margie, Cape Rock, Stickman Review, Yankee, America, The Pedestal Magazine, Barnwood, Indiana Review, Quarterly West, Carolina Quarterly, and various anthologies. She received the Richard Everhart Prize for Poetry. Breaking It Down, written by Beverly C. Lucy, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 6 minutes, 30 seconds. Breaking It Down by Beverly C. Lucy Ian sits easily in the hard laminated desk, his body twisting slightly so he can address the entire class when he needs to. They are rubes, his classmates, and easy to impress. Ian knows things, things these locals would never grasp. In fact, taking a freshman composition course wasted his valuable time, but he humored the registrar, his advisor, and the professor. Right now, he is taking issue with a question Karen asked about point of view. Can we use I in this paper? She just said that the paper should be objective. I can never be objective. It's the first rule of journalism, Ian notes, then looks at the professor. I'm right, right? Except his face itches. The mistake occurred this morning. It took four long drags of the razor before he realized he had not coated the growth with shaving gel. Now the right side of his jaw feels alive and prickly. No wonder he left his notebook home. No one could think straight with cheek ants. He watches Lacey, who sits beside Cairn, staring at her own weedy split ends, her eyes crossing. Ian can see each strand as if they are magnified, bound like white asparagus in a rubber band. No one has vision like his. No one. He becomes distracted by her nipples, which are huge for such a small, bony girl. They seem to be growing, but that couldn't be right. What if they spread underneath her gauzy shirt and threaten to escape like the mudslide he saw once while living in California? He rubs his encrusted eyes and thinks about the beach. Arkansas has no beach. Wait, what just happened? Everyone's leaving. Ian knows he can't get up, even though the class appears over. First, his legs won't move. Not on command like that, just because the time is up. Second, he has to convince the professor that while his way of writing is not reflected in the course outline, it shouldn't matter. 
I just wanted to let you know that I've been working on that paper, and I should have it ready by next week. He flashes the good smile, the one he uses in bars. She's old, but she's female. She'll get it. What paper is that? She's looking around for easy erase markers, tossing them into her rolling briefcase, already stuffed with folders, water bottles, peanut butter nabs, and pens. She's playing with him, the bitch. The descriptive paper you gave us to do. See, I work a little differently than most people, and I can't hand in anything that isn't perfect. You understand that. You're a writer, too. Ian, I haven't seen you in a month. We've done three papers since then. I'm sorry if you're still working on an old paper. It's too late. Good. She sits down. If she walked out, it would be bad, but she sits down, so that's good. Ian says, I meant to email you to let you know what's been going on, but it's personal and, well, I guess I can trust you. Okay, here's the thing. He mentions a few tidbits, like the ADD and the other medications, and how they hated each other, which turned into a problem for a while. But it's all fixed now, and he's worked it out with all his teachers and is starting fresh. Really? You're on top of your other classes? Ian can tell she is worried about keeping her job. He figures she wants to be one of those creative teachers who cares and are flexible. Deadlines were for the masses. She looks at him, impressed that he has managed to emerge from a month-long fog ready to go. Ian has filed complaints against faculty before in other schools, but he won't need to in this case. Oh, well, see, I don't have to go to my psych classes except for the tests. It's easy. I know all that stuff, and my religion professor has been terrific. He knows what I'm working on. What's that? It's a religious journal. My journey. I should show it to you. You'd love it. It's about ready to be published. Sounds as though you don't really need this course. Exactly, he thinks. She gets it. He doesn't need this stupid course. But still, he tells her about his work with the Army, special training in PSYOP, his other projects, his plans, how he needs to stay below the radar with these other meds so his career won't be ruined. But he can trust her, and he makes the promise to come to class every session from now on, stopping only when his tongue gets too big in his mouth, turning white and fuzzy like a mutant caterpillar. But he's finished his Mountain Dew, so he has no choice. He looks over the teacher's head to Pinnacle Mountain. Maybe he'll climb that tonight. Yeah, stay up there for a week, shake up his folks. No, he has to focus. So we're okay? As long as you know you can't get higher than a C at this point, even if you do everything from now on, we're okay. I gotta be fair to the others. You don't get it, do ya? He probably shouldn't be screaming, but she deserves it. What's that? I can't get a C? C is average. I'm not average. Can't you see that? Fine. I'll make up the work if that's what you want. Trust me, I can do it. I can do anything. I'm a perfectionist, though, and I... I can't hand it in if it's not perfect. Had he said that already? And so long as you know that I don't bother with spelling and structural garbage because it's all about the content, isn't it, right? I speak into the computer and it types for me. I'll send you four papers and streaming audio. You'll love them. He gets up since they are agreed and therefore finished. That won't be considered makeup work. Did you write down the title of the story I want you to download for Thursday? Excuse me? Why is she still talking? They were finished. He tells her, I'm late for a meeting upstairs with one of the full professors. That will make her think twice. He moves swiftly out the doorway and heads down the long hallway, past the elevator. 
the vending machines, and the lost and found. Ian crosses the street. He sees her in the parking lot five minutes later, getting into her stupid loser teacher car, but is sure that she doesn't see him, even though she looks straight in his direction two cars over from her. He can be invisible when he wants to be. The army needs people just like him. The End Beverly C. Lucy has been widely published in anthologies, literary magazines in the U.S. and the U.K., and on the web. Her website is tuliptreeroad.com, a home for wayward words. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. 